Welcome to the Discipleship Helps podcast. This podcast is designed to accompany you as you work through the book, Discipleship Helps. This book guides us through foundational doctrine every disciple should know. From time to time, you'll be able to pause and write your answers to the questions in the workbook. We encourage you to read each scripture and cover this journey in prayer. So without further ado, let's begin. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to week one of Discipleship Helps. We are in section one called Finding the Rock, and this is lesson one on God. We are going to be discussing who is he and what are his attributes. Follow along with us as we begin. So let's begin. Let's open up. Each week as you begin to make your way through the lessons, I just want to remind you to be prayerful. Every time I sit down to write anything for any group, whether it's a Bible study on a Wednesday morning or a sermon on a Sunday or just going to talk to a few people, it is heavily coded in prayer. And uh, there's been lots of prayer that's gone into this. Um, But pray that God would open your eyes, would open your ears, and would soften your hearts as you read these things. Um, Because a lot of times we carry in some of the yuck that we've picked up along the way. And uh, we need the Lord to illuminate these things for us. Amen? Amen. Key quote. A correct view of God is foundational to all other theology. Norman Geisler and Ron Rhodes, Conviction Without Compromise. Um, Let's turn to these verses. We're going to look up. Every time that you see a verse, we will turn to every single one, just so that you get that expectation in your head. Uh, Someone read it out loud and proud. Oh, for sure. It's good. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Amen. Uh, let's go to Proverbs 9.10. Okay. Someone read that out. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Praise the Lord. Uh, Romans one twenty. Someone read out Romans one twenty loud for us, please. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without any excuse. So we're going to take a moment here. This is going to be our first pause. Do you know and fear God? Take a minute to make a personal declaration about these verses. So everybody take out your pens. If you need a pen, raise your hand. Good. Break it down separately. Do you know God? And then separately, do you fear God? I wrote down, I know the Lord because I obey His commands. I recognize the difference between who I am and who He is. Therefore, I realize I am not in control, nor is my glory the main goal. My fear is reserved only for Him. It says, do you know and fear God? This must be where we start. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we start here tonight. We start at knowing and fearing God. And this is the right place for us to start. We have to make sure that in the core of who we are, that we say, I am not God. He is God. My desire is to know Him and to understand what He requires and what He desires. And if we'll start there, then we can take what He says 
and apply it to our lives. And we'll reap the benefits of it. Let's go to the introduction. For man to study God is for the finite to study the infinite, the corruptible to explore the incorruptible, the limited to seek out the limitless. What a lofty and noble pursuit. Proverbs 25.2 states, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. Let's turn there. Someone read uh, 2 and 3, please. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to, seek, to search things out. As the heavens for height and the, the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Amen. Amen. Have any of you ever looked at it as a glorious thing, a noble pursuit to search out the living God? Have you ever thought of it that way? To seek out the things that are concealed as a glorious and noble pursuit? Right? It is to the glory of kings to search it out. It's for our benefit that God has hidden these things so that we could search them out. Do you know that there was a prayer that rabbis would pray every time they would come across something that they didn't know in the Word? Now, these were men who their entire lives were spent memorizing not just the Word, but everyone, everyone else's commentary on the Word, including the oral traditions. And every time they came across something that they didn't know or that they didn't understand, they would pray a prayer of thanks to God because they knew that He would reveal it to them. If everything was just ours immediately and we didn't have to search anything out, we wouldn't get that feeling of when we finally discover. Have you ever looked into something and then you finally discover it and you're like, oh, that's what it means! And you get so excited? This is God's way to hide these things so that when we search them out, we find them, it produces in us that feeling of success, right? So that we learn to find joy in searching Him out and in knowing Him more. In our time together, we will take on the kingly and noble task of examining some aspects of God as revealed in His Word, specifically the following. This is what we'll be looking over tonight. The names of God. God as creator and sustainer, God's supremacy and oneness, the Trinity, Triunity, Ichad, and Godhead concept, personal attributes, and divine attributes. It is important to note that the scripture never sets out to prove the existence of God. Listen to this next statement. As Abraham Cohen, an early 20th century Jewish scholar, proclaims, in the Bible, the existence of God is regarded as an axiomatic truth. The word axiomatic means self-evident or unquestionable. It's regarded as an unquestionable truth. No proofs are offered to convince the Jew that there must be a God. Think about this mindset. The idea that if someone doesn't believe in God, that they're the odd man out. That if they're asking for proof, that the response would almost be, Proof? You need proof that there's a God? That the burden of proof would be on the one who says there is no God rather than the one who says there is. This was a Jewish way of thinking. I think we would do well to adopt that. We don't have to seek to prove the existence of God. God exists. Therefore, what does He require? That's a better pursuit. No proofs are offered to convince the Jew that there must be a God. By the way, the word Jew means God-praiser. So we're going to stop for another moment so we can fill in this next blank. What reason has God ever given you to doubt Him? This is not uh, supposed to be a um, rhetorical question. If you feel that God has given you reasons to doubt Him, write it down. It's important for us to allow things to be broken down 
in this setting. When we talk about things being stable so that we can build on them going forward, wrestle with these things. If you have questions, now is the time to allow them to come to the surface. If you have doubts, be honest about them. God can handle your doubts. He can handle your questions. But what you don't want is to leave something unresolved and for it to be a source of bitterness or fear going forward. We want to deal with these things right now. Let's go to names of God. Just one last thought on that. Leaving things unresolved, like in this way, when we bring it to the surface, it's okay if the Lord begins to take us on a journey sometimes. I want to emphasize that. I'm not promising that in this class that everyone's doubts about God will be relieved. There may be some things that you continue to battle against. There's a term called um, ascension that was developed in the 1400s. Uh, by scholars and by great thinkers. It was this idea that I don't have all my questions answered yet, but I have enough questions answered to make a decision. Do you hear that? I may have a hundred questions that I'm wanting answers to, but before I decide to give my whole life and heart and dreams and future to God, I may not need all hundred questions answered. Does that make sense? Names of God. While there are many titles or names of God revealed in Scripture, we will briefly discuss a handful of these terms. I bet some of you guys might learn something here. So let's look. You can see that it's two different pages, but I want you to keep your finger on this page. You see the names that we're going to look at are God. The next one is Lord. And the next one is Lord. What's the difference between those two? All caps. And then one is a capital L with lowercase O-R-D. So we're going to look in these three. And then at the end of this, we're going to it's going to say, please write in your own words what you think the difference between these names are. This is going to stretch your brain a little bit. Some of these questions are softballs. Other ones will catch you off guard. This is one that will catch you off guard. This is a deep one, okay? When it says God, El, Eloah, Elohim in Hebrew, Theos in Greek, these are the terms used for deity and speak of God's transcendence, power, and role as creator. Elohim, plural, is the most commonly used form and most likely speaks of the plurality of God's majesty. Next is Lord in all caps, or Yahweh, or yud heh vav heh In Hebrew, Kyrios in Greek. So it's a different word in Hebrew, different word in Greek. Known as the Tetragrammaton or the ineffable name, since it is never pronounced in Jewish circles, ineffable or non-pronounceable or unpronounceable. This is the covenant name of God, which he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.15. Let's go there. Someone start in uh, 13 and read through 15, please. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to them, uh, sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then I shall tell, What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Good. Did you see Lord capitalized? Yeah. All the letters capitalized? That's Yahweh. That's there, the tetragrammaton, the ineffable name. Some of these terms, maybe it's your first time hearing them, but we're going to use them throughout the course. Yahweh, yud heh vav heh ineffable name, the tetragrammaton. <coughs> Simply put, Yahweh means I am who I am. 
For example, God is, was, and always will be. In agreement with Jewish translation practices, Christian translators use L-O-R-D, all caps, instead of Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, in order to avoid misuse or mispronunciation of the divine name. So a couple of things on this. Um, I am, uh, the name for God, is just the existent one. So when it's asking questions about who is God, or asking God, who are you? And he says, I exist. I have always existed. I am, I am existing. So you're asking, remember we were talking about this in the beginning, you're asking the infinite to describe himself in a way that the finite can understand. Already we're off to a disadvantage, right? When we pronounce it Yahweh, the, there's no vowels in that word. It's Y-H-W-H. So what happened is Jews uh, purposefully put in the wrong vowels or put in vowels so that it would be mispronounced. When we pronounce it Yahweh, we're pronouncing it in a way that's incorrect, purposefully, so that we don't mispronounce the name. That's the history behind the word Yahweh. Because when you think about Yahweh, you may think Y-A-H-W-E-H. Well, those vowels were put in so that we pronounce it the wrong way. When it talks about blaspheming the Lord's name or overusing his name, uh, it was built in that we wouldn't overuse his name. Isn't that interesting? Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Adonai in Hebrew, also Kyrios in Greek. So we have El or Elohim. We have Yahweh. We have Adonai. The official title, Lord so to speak, of God Almighty in both the Old and New Testaments. It means owner, ruler, master. When you call him Lord, you're calling him owner, ruler, master. That's offensive to the rebellious mind. The one who has supreme authority, control, and ownership of all things. This is the word that replaced Yahweh in the reading of the divine name. It is used of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, God the Son. So here we go. We're going to take a few minutes. It says, please write in your own words what you think the difference between these names are. Try to avoid simply restating the definitions. It's a very Greek way of learning. Memorize the answer and repeat it back to me. <coughs> Try and think through the differences between these names. I thought uh, a neat thought on that. I put, I am one man, but my children call me dad. My wife calls me babe. <laughs> and others call me Nick or pastor. As God re reveals himself in power, Elohim. As he reveals himself in faithfulness, Yahweh. And officially, Lord, Adonai. He is far off and powerful, but he is also close. I wrote down, Yahweh seems closer. His name is not just titles, but rather his character. Let's turn to Genesis 22. How many of you guys have ever heard of names described as functions? Right? How many people in here named their children something on purpose because you wanted them to be that? Yeah. yeah. That's a biblical practice. That's a commonly practiced thing to name your children what you want them to be or to describe the situation that you were in when they were born. But very often what we'll see is that names uh, also carry with it a description of the function. Sometimes the names that we read about whenever we find the definition... Um, I don't have any examples off the top of my head, so I won't go too deep into it. But sometimes 
what the name would later mean was given to it because of the way that that person behaved. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? So if the first person named that was a warrior, maybe from then on, that name means warrior. Do you see? But names weren't just names. It wasn't just... Do we have any Steves in here? There's a Steven. How about a Bill? Are there any Bills in here? Okay, good. So it's not like... It's not like the... It's just... Okay, this is Bill, right? For no reason. For no good reason. A name carries with it function, authority. It describes character. That's different for us. That's not our culture. But this was their culture. And you have to remember, this is the culture that God chose to reveal himself to for a reason. In Genesis 22, 16. uh, Someone read 15 and 16, please. Okay. He goes on to say that he will surely bless him. But did you hear, who did he swear by? Himself. Himself. His character. He swore by who he was. Not just letters assembled to form a word, but he swore by himself. There was no higher name that he could swear by. Creator and sustainer. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He created the entire universe and set time into motion. The Bible opens with this very fact. Let's turn to Genesis 1.1. By the way, Naomi, on your question earlier about versions, if you ever want to have a little bit of fun, read the preface that the, uh, the people who assembled and translated put at the front of the Bible. It's interesting to hear some of the thoughts behind why they did what they did. Preface. None of us... How many of you have ever read the preface in your Bible? Okay, sweet. Good, good. We got some studious students in here. Someone, Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's good. God is the creator. From this verse forward, we see God bringing everything into order, creating time, the sky, land, plants, sun, moon, stars, fish, birds, animals, and finally, mankind. The Bible teaches us that God created all things ex nihilo, Latin, from nothing, by his spoken word. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew in Genesis 1, you'll see asa and bara. You'll see two different words that are only used, that, where only one English word is used, which is made. But those two words mean something totally different. It's one thing if I take Plato and form it into a snake. That's really all I can do. (laughs) It's another thing if I create Plato out of nothing, right? But that gets translated into just one word in English. So if you go back and you're reading in Hebrew, you'll see God made this out of what was. God made this out of nothing. So go back sometime if you have the chance, and we will get to it. That will be part of what we study in this class. But if you get the chance to look through that beforehand, it's pretty interesting to see what was formed out of what already was and what was formed out of nothing. Genesis 1 is really interesting when you go back and you look at what was created out of what was. From nothing, by His spoken word. By the way, that's always a trick, isn't it? When we talk to evolutionists it's like I I seriously don't care about literally any other part of the process just tell me how you get something from nothing that's that's the only thing that really matters don't don't worry about trying to piece together or shove puzzle pieces in just show me how you get something from nothing that's it you know Stephen Hawking I don't know who, who did him wrong but is spending his his last breaths trying to to prove that. But what ends up coming out is the same thing with Neil deGrasse Tyson, where you you really sense that like, man, it seems like, not not only do they not believe that God, it seems like they're angry at God who doesn't exist. So I don't understand that. 
so just that point, just give me, how do you get something from nothing? That's it. That's all I want to know. Um, but we believe that God created everything from nothing. Someone read Hebrews 11.3, loud and proud. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Amen. What's more is that God did not just start a cosmic stopwatch and let it unwind. Or, as some people put it, create everything and then step back and take a break. He is still personally and compassionately involved in sustaining His creation. Now, we're studying God, but I want us to turn to Colossians 1. It's too applicable for us not to look at it. So, someone start reading in verse 15, please. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's good. So we see it's describing to us not only a God who created everything, but then who intricately interwove Himself into everything and is sustaining it by His love and by His power. Do you see that? Now, I disagree that a tree is God, but I do agree that when you begin to examine a tree more and more you see characteristics and attributes of a divine creator who is an artist. I believe that you can see, according to what we read in Romans 1.20, that God is not just revealed through the gospel being preached, but he's revealed by everything that can be seen in creation. The Lord is loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, the Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. That's Psalm 145. Let's turn there. Start reading at uh, 13. Uh, read 13 through 16 if someone would. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Amen. Is there anybody in here who, while serving the Lord, while living for the Lord, has had to go without a meal, has had to go without clothes or without shelter? It's okay if you have. Is there anybody in here? Okay. I find it interesting that as, um, as we live for the Lord and as we trust and we step out in faith, that that doesn't happen more frequently. That doesn't happen more often. There have been times, I'm sure that you guys can relate, where I had no idea where any money was going to come from and I was sure that we were going to get utilities cut off or that things weren't going, we weren't going to be able to have money for groceries. I was sure that those things were going to happen. And yet somehow he comes through. Have you guys ever been there? I was sure I wouldn't have the resources to make it to get to where I needed to go. And yet somehow he comes through. And that has happened more times than I can count. When I think about creator and sustainer, I think about a God who is always watchful over his creation, who knows not just what us, the crown jewel of his creation, need, but even birds and flowers. He watches out for their needs as well. 
He is the sustainer. What are some of the ways, we're going to pause here, you can see that God as your creator and sustainer has been at work in your life? Two different things, creator and sustainer. I wrote down, I have seen him spring up so much life around me and in my environment and through my kids. I have been in times where I had no idea where provision would come from and I have never missed a meal or been without a roof or clothes. On a piano, the pedal that you press down so that the note is held is called the sustain pedal. And what it does is it holds back the hammer from deafening the string. So when the string is struck and it sings out that melody, the sustain pedal will hold it back so that it just can keep singing. And I thought that that was so neat to think about the idea that he's our sustainer. He's the lifter of our head. Supremacy and oneness of God. The word supremacy means superior to all others, the head, the top, the foremost, the chief. Supremacy and oneness of God. Understanding God as creator and sustainer is essential to understanding his supremacy, which is intimately bound to his oneness. The Bible teaches us that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only unique one God. He alone is the supreme being. The scriptures are replete or full of or rich with this truth. For example, Deuteronomy 4.39. Let's turn there. By the way, when I'm sitting down with my friends and we're talking through the word, we go through the word this much. We'll flip through the word this much, if not more. So when you're talking and you're making points and stuff like that, get used to having the Bible out. When you go to meet with someone, take your Bible with you. Plan on opening your Bible. Read your Bible before you go to different meetings with people so that you come with something to offer. Watch how often, if you'll be reading your Bible consistently or you'll read your Bible before a conversation, <clears throat> watch how frequently the conversation turns to the word if you come with something to offer. If both people are thinking, I don't want to be that person that brings the my Bible, both of you may wish that the conversation was about the Bible, but neither one of you initiates it, so it ends up being a conversation about other things. And you might end up wasting time, right? You might not want to call it that because you don't want to feel like you just wasted time. But oftentimes we waste time. Get in the Word. Bring your Bible with you. Plan on bringing something up to offer someone. Stop in the middle of a conversation. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything that you want me to share with this person? And then watch. He'll take you from one scripture to another, things that you've been hiding in your heart, and the conversation, the nature of the conversation will change. You'll be blessed, and your friend will be blessed as well. Amen? Amen. Deuteronomy 4.39. Someone read that out. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above on the earth below. There is no other. Okay, Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's read that out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Amen. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. This is the Shema. This is the uh, greatest commandment. Jesus himself says it. Let's go to Mark 12, 29. When you ask people, what's the greatest commandment? Most people would say what? Come on, y'all, talk to me. What would most people say the greatest commandment is? Mind and strength, yes. In Mark 12, 29. 
And love your neighbor as yourself, right? Someone read out. Uh, start in 28, please. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. We see he does go on to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But isn't it interesting that he starts off with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Doesn't that make you think like, man, what am I missing about that? Because it doesn't seem to communicate much. And how is that a command? The Hebrew word for hear is Shema. To hear also means to do. <coughs> Pastor Eric was sharing with me a, a while back. I think he shared it with, with you guys as well. When it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's given as a command. But if you go back and you look at the original language that it was given in, it was more like a prophecy. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's different if the emphasis is put on, hey, you have to do this. Versus, as you get to know Him, your desire will be to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, mind, and strength. How many of you guys who have been falling more in love with the Lord can see that coming true in your life? I'm loving him with more of my heart, with more of my soul, with more. Do you see? This was meant to be an invitation to more. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It doesn't just mean hear this. It somehow means do this. Do this, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. A lot of times we are battling against our culture who is moving more towards love is God rather than God is love. Right? What we see is that this idea of doing or this works-based faith is exhausting. It's overbearing. That's not who God would be. God just loves me just the way that I am. I want to tell you that that is coming less from the Word. It's coming less from God Himself and more from the culture, more from a growing weariness by people to be accountable to anyone or anything. We don't want to have to be accountable to anyone. But God gives us works that were prepared in advance for us to do. And not because he's bored, not because he's insecure, not because he has nothing else to do, but for our benefit. This is what we can't yet see, but we must first understand that he is not divided in saying, Hear, O Israel, hear, and do, O Israel. You know, the, the rabbis will boil down uh, in, in Genesis 1. Uh, they'll say everything is summed up in this. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he divided the light and the darkness. And they say everything else is commentary on that one principle from the beginning. And being able to sum up the most important thing light separating from darkness and then him saying the, the greatest command is hear hear today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion today is the day of salvation if you hear his voice respond hear first timothy 2 5 let's turn there someone read out first timothy 2 5 please there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, that man, Christ Jesus. If there is one God, can there be other gods? No. 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 This oneness of Yahweh God is what separates Judaism and Christianity from all other world religions. So now we're going to take a pause here. 
please describe the difference between polytheism, poly meaning many, theos meaning God, so many gods, polytheism, and monotheism, one God, monotheos. Describe the difference between polytheism and monotheism. I wrote down polytheism, separate and distinct characters who desire different things and have different plans and methods. And also What's that? Limitations. And limitations. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. And monotheism, I wrote down there is one plan, one desire, one method. Yeah. <coughs> I want to take us through a few verses real quick. Um, let's do some rapid fire. The verses are John 5, 19 through 20, John 16, 13 through 15, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28. Who will take John 5, 19 through 20? Got it. Okay. Uh, let me get someone to take John 16, 13 through 15. Okay, and then finally, uh, someone take 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28. Okay? Okay, when you, when you get to John 5, go ahead and start reading real loud. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Amen. Does the son act on his own? No. Okay. Uh, John 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and make it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Does the Spirit speak and act on His own? No. Do you see that? The Son doesn't act on His own. The Spirit doesn't act on His own. Who are they receiving direction from? The Father. Let's begin to read. A further revelation of God's oneness appears throughout Scripture throughout the Scripture, in the form of what some call the Trinity. By the way, I don't use that word. Or the three persons of the Deity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are eternally and fully God. They are one and operate in one accord. There is complete unity and harmony between them. Hear this. There is complete unity and harmony between them. That complete unity and harmony is a characteristic of the Hebrew word ichad, which is translated one. In Deuteronomy 6.4. We read that earlier, so we're not going to go there again. Mentioned earlier. While the term Trinity is not found in Scripture, this truth is absolutely revealed in the Bible. As F.F. F. Bruce and W.J. Martin have stated, in the New Testament, the Trinitarian pattern is so clearly defined that one would be compelled to invent some such word as Trinity if it did not already exist. <laughs> I do find that funny. Some examples of this pattern are found in the following. Let's go here, Matthew 28. What we're about to look at is examples in Scripture of all three present at the same time. Someone uh, made up a joke one time. He said, um, you know, my secret is I am Batman. And, he, and I was like, what? And he's like, well, have you ever seen me and Batman in the same room at the same time? <laughs> All right, someone start reading in verse 18, please. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So we see Jesus states that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, hence his title, Lord. Following this declaration, he commands the disciples to go into the nations and make other disciples, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we baptize people, that's what we do. Other churches may do only Jesus, and that's totally fine too because another scripture says baptizing in the name of Jesus. And so we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit here present in Matthew 28. Let's go to Mark 1. Uh, someone read out 9 through 11, please. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Amen. So we see here you find Jesus, the son undergoing water baptism, followed by the physical, visible descent of the Holy Spirit upon him and the proclamation of the Father from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, we're going to get to a, a point in the future where we break down each of those. That's stringing pearls that he's doing. That's for a later Date, but the Lord, uh, as He's speaking over His Son in this moment, uh, gives the whole gospel in those three statements, and we'll we'll describe that later. But uh, let's go to Second Corinthians thirteen. Okay, someone read out verse fourteen, if you would, please. Amen. And then finally, uh, 1 Peter 1 2. What we just read is one of the many examples found in Paul's writings. All three persons of the Godhead are named specifically in conjunction with one another. And in 1 Peter 1, would someone read out verse 2, please? Amen. So we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. Now over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving deep into the Son in the same way that we're doing with God right now, and the Holy Spirit in the same way that we'll do with the Son. And so we're going to dive deep into each of their persons and the way that they manifest, the way that we understand them. And what you'll see is as we build on those, that the work of the Father is what the Son does. And the work of the Son is what the Holy Spirit does. Okay? So the Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus. That's why he said it'd be better that I go. Right? But Jesus does the work of the Father. He came to reveal the Father to the world. Amen? In addition to the examples given above, Wayne Grudem defines the corresponding work and personalities of the Trinity according to the two most important events in history, creation and redemption. The fact that the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are all clearly seen operating in both of these events, we won't turn here for now, but this is for reference because we're, we've hit many of these. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, John 1, 1 through 3, and 14, and John 3.16, and Colossians 1.19 and 20, and Titus 3.5, also testify to the divine nature and union that they share. We said we'd go to John 1, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Um, some, uh, ben, why don't you start reading out uh, till verse 5, and then read verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the uh, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Good. So we see that word who is from the beginning, was with God, was God, created all things, took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's how we know 
that in the beginning when it says, and God said, or when God is speaking, that word that comes out of his mouth is what took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is Jesus. And so in the beginning we see God, the Spirit, and Jesus. So while debate will undoubtedly rage on among theologians as to the best and most precise wording to describe the Godhead concept, the Hebrew word, Ichad, Ichad, often speaks of multiple parties acting in total unity as one. E-C-H-A-D. That's good. See, we were in Ichad. We were many, but one. See, Jews, when they're speaking Hebrew, will go, but the Arabs, they won't do that. It won't be the sound. So you can't go, Muhammad. That's not how you say it. Right? It'd be, Muhammad. 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 Any proper understanding of the Godhead must acknowledge that God is one and yet many. Personal attributes. The following attributes are defined as personal because we as people can in some way understand and possess them. It is important to note, however, that God does not possess these traits. Hear me on this. God does not possess these traits. He is this trait or that trait. In other words, God does not just show love. He is love. I put, or the source of love, or the definition of love. This is the problem. When we say, that doesn't seem loving, God wouldn't do that. That's where we get into trouble. That doesn't seem like love. God wouldn't do that. Instead of saying, God does this, therefore this is love. Do you see the difference? We get into trouble when we say, that doesn't seem loving, I can't believe that God would do that. As opposed to saying, God does this, therefore this is love. You're putting yourself in the position of love. This is how we get to the conundrum of saying that love is God rather than God is love. And if you wonder whether or not that's catching traction, you've heard me talk about it before, the Pope has put together a video. The Pope. Jesus on Earth, supposedly, <laughs> has put together a video of him, of a Jew, of a quote-unquote Christian, and of a Muslim, all coming together and saying, we call God different things, but one thing we all can agree on is love. Unity under love, but not real love, man's version of love. Below is a short list of God's personal attributes. This is by no means exhaustive. Miss Sharon, would you please take the first square and read it out from beginning to end? Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Statement. God is the creator and revealer of love. If you want to find love, you must find it, and through God. Amen. Amen. Vicki, would you please take God is just and read out that square? Read that last sentence one more time, please. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just he is. Sorry, and just is he. Amen. Keep going. Revelation 15.3 Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Statement. We may not always understand God's justice, but he is just and will exact his justice in his own time and in his own way. Wow. So rather than saying, that doesn't seem fair. 
In the same way we say, that doesn't seem loving. Do you see the traps that we can fall into when we say, wait a second, as I understand justice, that does not seem fair. Wait a second, as I understand love, that does not seem loving. Can you see the traps that we would get into if we are dealing with an infinite God? With the God who is the source of these traits. If He is justice, then what He does is just. And if we differ or disagree with what He's doing, then we are the ones who need to change. Do you see that? Amen. God is merciful. Where's Brother Tony? Is he still in here? Yeah. Tony. Tony. Hunky Tony. <laughs> we love you, Tony. Which one like God is merciful? God is merciful. Four thirty one for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Luke six thirty six, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Statement. God's mercy is a gift to us. Unmerited by anything we have done or could help to do. Once again, we are commanded to be as He is. Amen. So, amen. Thank you. So, four undeniable characteristics of God are love. He is just. He's holy. He is merciful. If I want to find love, I must find it through. Blank is a certainty because God is justice. <clears throat> That's not as easy. What's that one? What is certain? What is a certainty because God is justice? I would say judgment. That's what I wrote in. I wrote in judgment. Let me pause for a second. Does God judge people? What will be the result if God lives in us? By what standard? His standard. We judge because He lives in us, and He has called us to judge, but we judge by His standard and not our own. God is holy and requires me to be holy. Someone define holy in a very simple way. Set apart. I love it. If I received mercy from God, I must give mercy. mercy to others. Let's turn the page to divine attributes. These attributes are those which we as humans do not share with God. We're going to talk about what He is and what we are not. Let's turn to Hebrews 4.13. Read this one very, very loud. And if you're hiding secrets or you have unconfessed sin, please hear this very loud. Yes, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Mm. My version says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees all. We've talked in the past about times when uh, God sought to find something out. I used to believe that way. I now believe different. I believe that God is allowing someone to go through something for them to see what's in their heart. We see eternality on here means God does not have a beginning or an end. He is eternal. We had a beginning. All of us did. We were hidden in Christ, yes, but we had a beginning. Our flesh will have an ending, but our souls will live forever. Omnipotence means nothing is too hard for God. This is not a philosophical statement, as in, can He create a rock that's too heavy for Him to lift? 
But let's instead turn to Jeremiah 32, 27. Thirty-two Someone read that out loud and proud. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? Come on. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? When I was little, we used to sing that song. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Right? Still remember it. Apology accepted. Omnipresence means God is present at all places and at all times. Seem too hard to understand? Well, He is God, and we are not. Immutability. This is my favorite aspect of God. Favorite. Means God never changes. <laughs> Let's go to James 1.17. He never changes. Never. Man, that just makes me want to sing and shout. He never changes. Someone read out James 1.17, please. Every good thing stowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Come on. He does not change. Amen. I love it. Summary. In summary, God cannot be boiled down into a neat little list of qualities and theology. He will not and cannot be boxed in by our limited thinking. He is ineffable, sublime, and truly awe-inspiring. The mystery that is Him will always be just that, a mystery. Do you know, even the Spirit of God searches out the deep things of God. That's crazy. The Spirit of God is searching out the deep things of God. <laughs> we do our best to describe Him in terms of His nature, attributes, and functions, etc. But at the end of our pursuits, the only thing left to declare is He is. He is benevolent, magnificent, and praiseworthy. However, no adjective or phrase in any language can truly do justice to the One who is, who was, and who always will be. Amen. 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 Y'all ready for your homework? Yes. Take time in prayer to reflect on this thought. How has your view or understanding of God changed? As a result of what we talked about. And if not, what stuck out to you? Write this down. Write these things down in your journal. Write these things down as you pray. The more that you engage with what we're going through, the greater the reward you'll get from this season, I guarantee it. And here's going to be the difficult part of this assignment. Please list one more scripture for each of the six aspects of God. Remember those aspects were what we covered. Those were the, 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 uh, the names of God. God is creator and sustainer. God's supremacy and oneness. The Trinity, Triunity, Ichad, and Godhead concept. They're found on page five. Personal attributes and divine attributes. So please list one more scripture for each of those six, six attributes on page five. And each week we're going to give you an extra credit challenge. And here's the extra credit challenge. Now Lindy said, because we each had our different thoughts on this, I said, have them ask a stranger to share with you their view of God. Talk to a stranger. Just be like, hey, tell me what you think about God. 
Share with me your view on God. I just want to know. I just want to listen. And if you feel like all you're supposed to do is listen, then just listen. If it leads to something else, then just go where the Spirit leads. But a variation of that. This would be like push-ups, you know, and it's like, if you want to do them on your knees, these would be modified push-ups, right? <laughs> just ask someone to share with you their view of God. But talk about it. Talk about it with each other. Talk about it with a stranger. Get the conversation going. Allow your mind to camp here, to stew over some of these things that we've been talking about. Listen, guys. This is the start. This is basic this week. Okay? We're going to get into deeper and deeper things. If you will go to the Lord in prayer, He'll show you deeper things and He'll take you deeper and He'll solidify these things in your heart even more than they were before. He has in mind, going through this in, in, in me, it solidifies these things. And it brings, to, it brings to mind the things that I need to focus on. So that's your homework. Next week, come, having looked into lesson two, written down your answers, and then we'll spend a little less time writing them down and a little more time talking through them together. Discipleship Helps is a creation of the One Association of Churches. To find out more about the One Association, you can visit one-association.org.